Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We start in Washington, D.C., which more closely resembles an armed camp today. Security tight, nerves on edge in the U.S. Capitol. Of course, it's all in preparation for this Wednesday's inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. That means it's the last final days of Donald Trump's presidency. How is he spending his last week in office? Let's find out from Karen Travers here from ABC News. President Trump has nothing on his public schedule today. He hasn't made any appearances since his trip to Texas last week, spending the weekend at the White House behind closed doors. The president's expected to leave Washington early Wednesday morning to fly to Florida, his last trip on board Air Force One. Mr. Trump will get a military send-off at Joint Base Andrews outside Washington, just hours before Joe Biden's swearing-in ceremony at the Capitol. The president is skipping Biden's inauguration, the first president in more than 150 years to not be there for the transfer of power. Karen Travers, ABC News, Washington. All right, let's go live to Washington, D.C. Now, my guest is Keith Martin, the former MP from British Columbia. He now lives and works in Washington. His office is just a few blocks from the White House. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Keith. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What's the mood like in Washington this morning? Tense. I walked around the streets last night and this morning. Uh, very few people on the streets. There's a huge military presence. They pushed out barriers about two kilometers from uh, Capitol Hill. And in fact, Washington, D.C., the core is actually being surrounded by sequential barriers, concrete barriers, uh, eight foot steel fences. So nobody can get through at all to the Capitol, or if anybody was to try to commit any acts of violence around the city, they that would be squashed very quickly by a huge military presence. Okay, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in the U.S. Capitol. It sounds like something like a deployment of uh, American military you might see in like a war zone. I mean, do they got like checkpoints? You got to go through checkpoints when you're traveling around Washington? There are actually. You can't go by vehicle. If you go by foot, you're either blocked or you have to go through metal detectors, which I did yesterday. Um, and the, the the military very polite, uh, very congenial. But there's a big show of force. There's a lot of automatic weapons uh, roaming around the city right now. Men and uh, and women in in uh, camouflage and full military gear. Uh, so the whole city is in lockdown. This is a fortress. And in fact, there are more soldiers here in Washington, D.C. now than there are deployed in Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq combined, which shows you the wow. size of the force that's here. Uh, we had some nervous moments this morning there when the, in the public address system there was an announcement about a, a possible threat, and it turned out it was a, a fire at a, at a homeless encampment uh, near Capitol Hill, which is, I don't know, maybe kind of emblematic of the, the times we live in here, but... Uh, you know, it's weird. It's weird to see uh, the place looking so un- unusual. Like, w- would you say people's nerves are kind of frayed? Like, I don't think anything's going to happen. I mean, these people, I don't think these people would try anything now, this time. Not, not here. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. But the real danger, I think, Mike, is not here. There are other, the, you know, those who would want to commit violence said that they were going to uh, um, approach or storm 
the other capitals, and they've all been ringed and they've all been protected around the country, all 50 state capitals. I think the real danger is actually what's going to happen after uh, inauguration or in areas that can't be protected because you cannot protect every part of this yeah. country. And the real danger is soft targets where these people who are domestic terrorists will attack. They said they will attack, and that's the danger. And I think as we go forward in the, in the weeks and months ahead, that remains a clear and present danger in the United States for everyone who lives here. Yeah. Speaking to Keith Martin in Washington, D.C., when you look back to the events of January 6th and, and the mayhem that happened there in the days leading up to it, I know you spent a lot of time walking around Washington, D.C. those days. Did you see any evidence or any Canadians down there during the storming of the Capitol? Only on, only on, on, on camera, on television. It shocked me, actually, to see people waving the Canadian flag along with uh, the American flag and other flags of white supremacist groups right on Capitol Hill as these individuals were storming Capitol Hill, I saw, to much to my shock, the Canadian flag. And then what I've learned subsequently on the day of the insurrection on the 6th, the storming of the Capitol, in Toronto, there were convoys of people saying, stop the steal, who were pro-Trump supporters running around in convoy in Toronto. So those supporters and those people who believe in the nonsense uh, and the, the big lie, that the election was stolen. They're in at home in Canada. Yeah, okay. you know, there's Trump supporters here for sure. We know, we know that for sure. What do you think about the, the situation that America is in right now? You've got a new president coming in in a couple of days, but the country is, of course, bitterly divided. How do you think they got they got to this point, and what's the path out of it to sort of better days ahead, in, in your opinion? That's that is the central question, Mike. And this is the the situation of where we are today is actually rooted in many, many years of the growth of domestic terrorism here in the United States that has been played out. And I want to say this is not just a U.S. problem. This is an international problem. We have domestic terrorist white supremacists in Canada. They've exercised these actions in Germany, Oslo, New Zealand, and others. So this is an international problem that undermines democracies. So what's been happening, and President Trump has they finally got a charismatic leader to give voice to things that they were feeling that they felt are an attack upon themselves. So the people who were who had stormed Capitol Hill, many of them who were white supremacist and extremist groups, they finally felt that they had the green light from the president of the United States to go in and attack Capitol Hill. It is, in fact, the, the most egregious assault uh, on American democracy that's ever occurred and the biggest crime committed by any American president in history. Now, now you have a problem of these extremist groups that firmly believe in their heart of hearts that something's been taken away from them. They believe that they're under an existential threat and they believe, some of them believe that they need to fight to be able to, to protect them, protect what yeah. they believe that they're entitled to, power and position. So, that now we have an America where the democracy is actually frayed and is in a very fragile situation. Once you bust it, you're not going to bring it back. So where do we go from here? You've got to prosecute the people who, who have been doing this. You've got, to, you've got to break out the disinformation routes that they use. But you've also got to use at a grassroots level, Mike, education to be able to understand why people are subjected to these this, kind of misinformation, disinformation, why they're radicalized. 
And you've got to be able to fight against that at a grassroots level through using different tools. The incoming um, uh, administration also has to deal with some of the very real issues of uh, people who have been largely left out of the economic advances yeah. of this country who are pretty right. desperate. So there's a lot of things that need to happen, and, um, and they're a pass forward. So the question is, will, will America do this? But this is a deeply, deeply fractured uh, country, and it's a deeply dangerous time for the United States. Let, let me ask you this real quickly, Keith Martin, just in the one minute or so that we have left. Uh, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole the other day put out a statement here in Canada that the, the conservative leader, there's no, there's no place in the conservative party for the far right. Uh, the liberals had been accusing O'Toole and the conservatives of kind of using Trump-style political tactics and talking points. You were an MP with the old Reform Party and then the Canadian Lions, kind of forerunners of, of the modern con- Conservative Party. Do you have any thoughts on, on where the Conservative Party is here at home in Canada right now, just in a minute? Well, those far-right groups that exist in Canada, and there are more than 300 of them in, in, the, in Canada, if politically they're going to gravitate towards the Conservative Party. So Mr. O'Toole, what he needs to do very publicly and continually is say there's no room or space for right-wing extremism in, in uh, Canada. He needs to speak out loudly and frequently and often if any of his members of Parliament, members of parliament uh, exercise any sympathy towards Mr. Trump uh, and those kind of egregious uh, uh, ideas. Um, and he needs to, all parties, the Conservative Party, Liberal Party, and NDP, needs to stand together as one voice against those kind of uh, racist, discriminatory uh, views and actions that will undermine our democracy in Canada. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Take care. All right, welcome back. The latest on the pandemic now. Let's check in with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister, thank you for coming on this morning. Hey, good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Let's start with the production delay of the Pfizer vaccine. This is very troubling news here from the pharmaceutical giant indicating that they're having some production uh, delays at their uh, main factory in Belgium and it will affect uh, shipments of the vaccine to Canada. How is this going to affect British Columbia? It's going to affect us in the short term, but not, I don't think, in the medium term. The purpose, as I understand it, from Pfizer and from the federal government for the delay is they're preparing for a massive increase and they need to create, uh, make changes to their production to, to make that happen. That's what they say, and I think it's, it's supported by the facts. But in the next month, it's going to mean less vaccine in British Columbia, probably in the order of about 60,000 less doses. As you know, we're just starting because we have a 35-day um, um, interval in between the first vaccine and a minimum of 35 days in the second vaccine in BC. But we're, it was 35 days ago on Tuesday when our um, immunization campaign started, when we got the first vaccines and had the first uh, doses given. So it's going to affect that because it's effectively going to reduce the number of first doses we can give in the next month until production comes back to capacity. What about the people who are waiting for their second dose now? Could they face a longer waiting period to get the second dose as a result of this? We're, we're going to give a full uh, briefing on this this afternoon just to, to put that out there, but it's our, our general view that the second dose uh, should continue uh, on schedule, and that's our expectation. You'll remember that that problem is really delayed for a couple of weeks. In the first week of the vaccine, we only received 4,000 doses in total. 
So those sorts of things we'll be able to manage over time. But it's not good news, Mike, when you get less vaccine. We've been yeah. we've uh, met the test. Uh, the vaccine is going into people's arms, and uh, especially in long-term care and for long-term care residents and staff, I think we've done a really good job. And we'd like to get more every day than we're getting now. So uh, to get less means um, a delay in the short run, and it means a delay in keeping some people who are in priority populations, the ones that we identified in this phase of the vaccine campaign, we have to delay getting the first uh, dose to those people, and that's uh, that's a real concern for us. How long of a delay? Well, for some people, it'll just be um, uh, a short period of, uh, of some weeks, but really, it's, it's 60,000 fewer doses in the short run in the next four or five weeks. And that means 60,000 fewer people. It's just as simple as that. We'll get doses of vaccine that we can only deliver the vaccine we have, right? But what we're expecting in March is for that to crank back up. In fact, what we're told by the federal government, I think by Pfizer, is that that the amount of vaccine for the whole period up to March 31st will be the same, but they're going to deliver it later. So uh, we're going to just continue to prepare our system. You, what we expect in the second quarter, so this is April, May, and June, is um, a total of 2.6 million doses. So we have to uh, gear up for that regardless. Okay, the Pfizer vaccine, are we fresh out of that in BC now, or do we have any now? We're, we're, not, we're not fresh out. We're expecting to get some this week. We're expecting the major effect of the delay to start next week, so we have some. Um, Pfizer was delivered on Wednesday last week, and so we're working our way through that, which we got Wednesday last week. We're going to get another almost full um, amount, up to, you know, near 25,000, which is what we've been getting in a week of Pfizer. And this doesn't affect the arrival of Moderna vaccine, which, which happens every three weeks. Um, and is in a short, we have less supply of in this period. We're depending on Pfizer more in this period, and that's why this matters. But the Moderna campaign, uh, the, the Moderna vaccine will continue to be delivered as promised. Okay, speaking to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, what can you say to people who are waiting for the vaccine, maybe for themselves or, or a loved one? And, and I'm thinking particularly of the people in, in the second cohort um, in the plan. So if people in beginning next month in February, let's say senior citizens over the age of 80, uh, expected to start receiving the vaccine according to the original schedule next month. Is that is that threatened now? Is that going to be a longer wait? We're going to have a detailed uh, plan to lay out. Uh, in the middle of this week, which uh, will give people a sense, not just for February, March, and April, so people in that category, but uh, but uh, younger people as well. But I would say that in the short run, meaning February, having 60,000 fewer doses has an effect, right? Um, but I believe that we'll be catching up to that in March, and, uh, and that's what we're preparing for. Now, obviously, uh, the federal government and the pharmaceutical companies are delivering the vaccine, and this is not a criticism of them. I know they're they're working flat out the federal government to try and get as much vaccine as possible. So I'm not. Uh, it's not a question of passing responsibility. That they're the ones yeah. who are delivering the vaccine to us, and uh, and as soon as we get it, we're going to try and get it, especially to vulnerable groups. And that starts with um, people over 80, but then will be obviously people from 75 to 79 and so on, because those are those that are are at risk of the worst outcomes in this right. pandemic. Minister, let me ask you about long-term care. We focus a lot on this issue in the show, and last week we had some officials from the long-term care sector on the program, and they continue to ask for uh, rapid testing to be made available in long-term care homes. I know there's a pilot project going on, but why not uh, roll out a more widespread rapid testing regime to protect the most vulnerable, our seniors in long-term care? Like, a lot of people are just wondering why not do it. I mean, I don't see the downside of it. Well, I think, first of all, 
all, um, a, that requires uh, resources and effectiveness, and it has to do with the accuracy of the tests and false negatives. So we have a we have an issue with that. Uh, a lot of the arguments for rapid testing are about home-based rapid testing. Those aren't licensed in Canada. So uh, I think what Dr. Henry has said rightly is that uh, it's not practical to do that. So what do we have to do? We have to focus on what's practical improved infection control, better screening at the door, better use of PPE. And that's why, because of our work together, including with the sector, we've had a better record overall on long-term care than other provinces. But that doesn't mean that we haven't had severe losses. I just want to understand how vulnerable people in long-term care have are. We have had 11 people pass away in assisted living so far in B.C., and over 600 in long-term care during a pandemic. Yeah. And that tells you the vulnerability, and it's why we've taken such measures as restricting visitation. So I hear them, and, uh, and uh, believe me, um, nothing focuses my interest more than long-term care, Mike. Uh, we think about it, it's the first thing I think about every day, first thing I think, last thing I think about before I go to bed. And it's personal as well as in my responsibility as Minister of Health. The practical uh, recommendation from the people who know testing is that uh, the strategy that we've employed is the best strategy. I know, but I, keep, I continue to hear a lot of frustrations, and I know you have too, from people who actually manage and, and administer this sector in our, in our province, and a lot of them wondering, we've got these rapid tests stockpiled, why don't we use them? Like, How many of those rapid tests do we have in British Columbia right now, re like ready to we, use? We have a significant number. I'll share that with yeah. you. I, it, the number, I think, changed this week. We have a significant number, but really not enough to do what people are saying uh, we should do, first of all. And secondly, unfortunately, the development of the rapid testing in terms of technology has been somewhat disappointing. Their use and the way they can be used, they take a, they take a long time to administer. Uh, we don't have sufficient quantities to do what people sometimes talk about, which is some sort of daily program, and, uh, and their effectiveness isn't as great. And that doesn't mean we're not using them. We do use them uh, in specific circumstances, including in long-term care. We do use them in, in rural and remote communities where, the, where all of those questions come up against the, the potential delay of getting a test, you know, to a test to a processing center for the test. We have used them in the downtown east side where it's sometimes uh, uh, difficult um, to find people after they've been tested. So we're, and so those things have been done and those pilots have been on. So we're using the rapid tests. It's just that uh, we want to have a testing program that's as effective as possible. And, uh, and I can tell you that, um, and that's particularly the case in long-term care, we also have to focus on other things. Uh, leadership, we've had to, we've had our health authority teams go in as leaders in long-term care in multiple care homes to support care homes in their efforts. Uh, in the case of Little Mountain, I know it's it's particularly yeah. hard, and I've talked to families, from, members from Little Mountain and many, many other care homes. Sixty Vancouver Coastal Health staff have gone in from, from uh, health care assistants to vice presidents to help support that situation. So um, nobody is more focused on this than people working in the health authority, and no one more gutted when we have losses like we've had at Little Mountain and Royal Irish Masonic yeah. and other care homes. Minister Lassie, let me ask you about the potential for an interprovincial travel ban. Uh, the Premier spoke about this last week. The province is getting a legal opinion on whether this can be done. Some people want to see the travel ban like this, others not so much. What, what is your personal opinion on, on an interprovincial travel ban? Do you think that would help or do you think it would be a good move? 
Well, there there has been one instituted in Canada in the Atlantic region, and it's right. not a travel ban, but it's a bubble, which is not dissimilar to what happens in international travel, right? But I think there's a difference. Uh, uh, for example, Pr- Prince Edward Island really has two entry points, and we have lots of entry points. We've got long borders, and so and, and a and much more significant back and forth between, say, BC and Alberta. So there are real challenges here. But, uh, but I think um, my message as Minister of Health, uh, the Premier is absolutely right to be looking at all the legal options and to be letting people know what to do there. But my message to everybody in league, as Minister of Health is no non-essential travel. And that means not just Albertans coming here, Ontarians coming here, Quebecers coming here, but us going to those places as well. Uh, this is a time to dig in. We have an, a vaccination campaign, which is going to help us. But we also have very high levels of COVID-19, and you've seen it take off in countries like Ireland that aren't that dissimilar to us in the last uh, few weeks. So we need to dig in right now. And that's my message is don't travel if you don't need to. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the potential for an interprovincial travel ban in British Columbia now. This idea was floated last week by BC Premier John Horgan. He said his government is taking a look at it. They are getting a legal opinion. Would it be possible to ban travel from other parts of Canada into British Columbia, put up a keep out sign or virtual wall at the border? Uh, some people not happy with this idea, especially in the already devastated travel and tourism industry. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Ingrid Jarrett. She is the president and CEO of the BC Hotel Association. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Thank you very much for coming on. Good morning. Can you tell me what went through your mind when you heard this idea about a travel ban? Well, I suppose the first thing is when you're talking about banning travel, you what might go through people's minds is that travel is dangerous and that there somehow is a correlation between people traveling and the risk factor during the pandemic. And, you know, the most important thing here is to understand that our industry is not promoting, nor are we encouraging non-essential travel in B.C. from other provinces. Right. Uh, The industry is completely aligned with the Ministry of Health, the health orders, and we've been working daily, weekly. Uh, We're very actively engaged in partnering and making sure that our industry remains very safe and that our protocols are in place. But the key here is between our provinces, people in work back and forth, and we don't know why somebody is in a car with a a license plate from another destination. Many, many Canadians have homes in British Columbia, and many of them have actually been here since we reopened in June. So the idea of a travel ban is is, um, certainly uh, protectionist, and it would seem that uh, that would hold British Columbians safe, but there is extremely limited or very, very limited uh, travel from other provinces within Canada into British Columbia currently. And what we'd like to see is uh, an ability to work towards rapid testing, making sure that we're looking at all the different things that it's been proven that human behavior, not travel itself, is actually the culprit for uh, rising cases and, and the impact of the pandemic. So there's all kinds of things that we can do to make sure that people are compliant and that they follow the rules uh, instead of looking at something like a travel ban. 
Okay, we just got a couple of minutes here. Could you comment on just how bad, how badly hurt the the industry has been by by the pandemic, and are, and are you worried that a travel ban could make it worse? Oh, absolutely. Our our industry is devastated. I mean, we have single digit occupancy levels in the in the urban areas right now: Vancouver, Whistler, or um, Victoria. The resort destinations like Whistler are seeing 80% reduction of, uh, of um, stats year over year. Uh, you know, many, we're saying 30 to 40% from our latest pulse check of businesses will fail if two things don't happen. One is, is that they actually can access the relief measures that have been announced provincially. Many, many of them, hundreds, thousands of those businesses have not been able to actually get the funds to make sure that they can stay in business. And then we need a plan when it's safe to do so and people are vaccinated and the pandemic numbers are down and it's time to reopen. We need a plan to do that. We need to adhere to the protocols now and we need to have a plan in order to get back to work. And uh, right now uh, we're lacking in that plan. That's very, very concerning. Okay, I just got one minute left here. If if the association is not encouraging non-essential travel, if you if you're on board with with the, the the travel advisory against non-essential travel, why not go a step further in a travel ban? Because I think there's much. Uh, I think a ban on travel right now indicates that travel is not safe, and that's yeah. not the case. We have supply chains, we have essential services, we have industries like mining and logging and construction that have never been shut down, and those are cross-border businesses. Yeah, but they wouldn't, but be, effect- they wouldn't be affected by a ban, though, presumably. Why not? Well, because it's essential. Right. right? So yeah. what is essential and what is non-essential? Yeah. That, is where the, that is where the difficulty lies. Uh, currently uh, traveling back and forth across the border. Uh, We don't know, unless we're stopping those people, what they're doing. And the insinuation is that there is a danger on traveling back and forth the border. I would suggest the majority of it is, in fact, essential service. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that proposed uh, interprovincial travel ban in British Columbia now. This was floated last week by Premier John Horgan. Maybe close the border to non-essential traffic coming into British Columbia. The Horgan government saying they're taking a look at it. They're getting a legal opinion. Can the province legally do this? Put up a keep out sign at the BC border. All right, let's talk about this now with my guests. We've got a great panel here for you from the Travel tourism industry in our province they are already struggling during this pandemic what would this mean for them royce twin is on the line he's the ceo of tourism vancouver royce thanks a lot for coming on thanks for having me mike also on the line is nancy small she is the ceo of tourism richmond nancy thank you for doing this good morning mike thank you very much Thank you to both of you for being here. Nancy, let me go to you first. When you first heard this proposal of an interprovincial travel ban in British Columbia, what went through your mind? Travel bans are, uh, they would further heighten the unnecessary fears, perceptions, and growing resentment, frankly, by BC residents toward visitors. Uh, and, and pitting travelers against visitors is unproductive and there there really is very little or no traffic moving between provinces right now because other provinces have travel bans as well 
But I think we need to look forward. Um, this isn't about business for next weekend, uh, even in the next couple of weeks. This is about what's going to happen in the future and how we can actually look to creating a productive conversation about reopening the industry, which, as you said, has been decimated for almost a year now. So I think it's about trying to move ahead and let's uh, focus away from banning travel and let's focus on safe travel. Okay, we do hear stories, though, maybe some of them are just anecdotal, uh, maybe some of them are exaggerated in people's minds, but we do hear stories of people coming from out of province. You see license plates. We've, mm-hmm. we've heard about people going to go skiing in Whistler from outside of B.C. You have people in the interior going to Big White. So do you think, Nancy, that, you know, we hear the reports of this, but do you think maybe it's just uh, kind of exaggerated in people's minds, that maybe it's not, it's not as big as maybe people might think it is? There's a lot of anecdotal discussion right now, but I think the other thing to focus on, it's not about travel or about people coming from another province. It's what's happening when they actually get here and what they're doing. And and really, our industry is trying to respond to that, and and we really have in the last year. And we're trying to promote how your behavior actually affects what's happening in the community where you go to. So, right. so the reality is there isn't much business out there, and, and those, those lineups in Whistler are due to health protocols that are happening actually on the mountain, uh, and I do believe they're anecdotal. But, but, you know, I do think that residents are fearful, and, and I think we as an industry have got to have a productive conversation with our health authorities to make sure that people understand there is a way to travel right now when it's safe. And, of course, we have to remember that, that and what I say right now, when we're moving on into uh, into this time of high high cases and, and again continued fear, we're talking about when it's appropriate to do so. So I think you you want to you want to make sure your listeners want to make sure that we're we don't have blinders on. Everybody is understanding and fully supportive of what the government is doing. And, and I think we've been we've had a good success here in DC. We need to continue that. But but I do think we can't pit travelers versus residents and and think that it's all on the backs of the traveling population. That's okay. creating these these increased uh, case counts. Okay, the travel tourism business has been really disproportionately walloped here by this pandemic. Let me check in with uh, Royce Chwin now from Tourism Vancouver. Royce, your thoughts? Yeah, I would agree with what Nancy is saying, and I we certainly from the travel tourism hospitality industry, we don't want to add any more stress to the amazing work that our frontline health service providers are doing, and they're doing a phenomenal job. But at the same time, this is about livelihood in the industry, which, uh, quite frankly, has its foot on the gas and its foot on the brake at the same time. And somebody took away that steering wheel, meaning that we want to get going. We respect what we need to do. The businesses within tourism and hospitality have done a phenomenal job of meeting and exceeding the health protocols and the standards and the directives that are out there. But let's focus on a plan to rebuild and restart this $21.5 billion annual industry for BC versus now considerations of interprovincial travel bans, which I think just sends the wrong message about BC being open for business and focusing on the future. Okay, right now there's uh, an advisory against non-essential travel. Royce, do you support that? I mean, from the perspective of the tourism industry, do you you understand and, and support the 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 travel advisory against non-essential travel yeah we do we, we do yeah. want to do our, our our part to support it absolutely 
it's when it gets to the next stage of conversation about shutting it down because there's all kinds of nuances as we know between our provinces as a good example bc and alberta uh, people that live on one side work in the other side whether it's uh, a family they own a property within their rights they pay property taxes all those kinds of nuances but if you don't have to be out let's not hurt each other in the rebuild and restart of our economy what we need to do Okay, um, there's talk about whether the government could even do this legally, and the government has said they're going to get a legal opinion on whether they could bring in an interprovincial travel ban. We've got a charter of rights and freedoms in this country that protects mobility rights. You're allowed to move around the country. Let me play this for you guys. This is uh, Michael Bryant. He's the head of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. He was on the show last week, and he talked about whether this would violate charter rights. Here he is. Section 6 of the Charter says Canadians have mobility rights, which means, you know, I live in Ontario, but um, I I can go uh, anywhere in the country because I'm a Canadian. Okay, Nancy, you're not, I know, you know, you guys are not lawyers, but as a tourism industry, have you guys thought about the legal ramifications of this? I mean, could the province even do it at all? Yeah, this is definitely beyond my pay grade, but (laughs) I will say that, I will say that, uh, we definitely have looked into it. And, and, and I think, you know, I think the way that I would say it is anything is possible. And, and I think they have to build a case for it. Uh, but I think if the will is there, I think that, and, and if the data is there, it could probably be done. The practicality of it is a whole other matter, which, which we don't really necessarily want to get into at this point. But again, I would go back to the point of pitting travelers um, as the bad people and, and regardless of their behavior, you have to think about what Dr. Henry has been talking about. What is actually the reason for the spread and for the increased number of cases right now? It's uh, within people's homes, and, and it's not necessarily due to the mobility of people, which is what our industry relies on. So I think heading back to the more productive conversation, which is let's look at a reopening plan. Let's look at yeah. something that's going to actually get people back to work in our industry, which right. has been absolutely decimated. Right, let me, Royce. Let me go back to you on that on that point. Mm-hmm. When we look ahead this year to 2021, we're all looking forward to the day when when this whole thing is over, when the vac everyone's been vaccinated, everyone's received the vaccine. We can start lifting some of these some of the the health the health orders and, and public public emergencies that have been put in place. Everyone is looking forward to that day, and I know your industry most of all. Um, do you think like a travel ban, an interprovincial travel ban, at this point? would maybe just set the wrong tone or send the wrong message when we do get to that point you know when the public advisories are lifted if you bring in a travel ban at this point does that maybe delay a potential recovery down the road uh i i think so from a from a practical standpoint where are we putting finite resources such as operations policing and how you even enforce that but secondly and perhaps most importantly we are about to embark on the biggest confidence rebuilding exercise we've done as a population, certainly in this generation. And that's what it will be about, whether you put a travel ban in or other measures. The longer this goes, the more confidence we're going to have to rebuild in communities, willingness to accept travelers, not just locals, but other Canadians. Think about transborder U.S. and think about uh, international as well. And, And what nobody's seen is that plan for rebuilding and restarting the industry that would suggest that when we're ready to go, we can have those kinds of conversations. And, you 
know, we understand right now we've got to lock things down. We, we've got to really manage this so it doesn't get further out of control because lives are at stake here. But there's another conversation that is missing, and that is about rebuilding confidence. That is a lifeblood of this industry, and we need people right. to move around. All right. Welcome back as we continue talking about a possible interprovincial travel ban in British Columbia. We've got our tourism travel panel assembled. Royce Twin is the CEO of Tourism Vancouver, and Nancy Small is the CEO of Tourism Richmond. 604 280 9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Alex calling on the road. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm for the ban. Um, I mean, I've paid one hell of a price physically because all my treatment stopped when the COVID first, first hit. People can't visit their elderly parents in care homes. People's moms, I know people's moms who have died and they couldn't be with their mom because of COVID. The sooner we stop moving around, shut down the airports, shut down everything, this is it's not, we're not going to get rid of it. The government says... We're getting this vaccine. Now we're not getting the vaccine. I mean, when does it stop? The big party up at Big White, the start of the ski season? I'm telling you, not everyone is from Big White. These people have arrived from different territories. I live in the ski resort. No one's from that resort. Very few. Most of them are from other provinces or other parts of the world. Thank you. Okay, okay, Alex, thank you very much for calling in. Well, Nancy, if they were to actually do this, if they did bring in a travel ban of some some description, I mean, we talked a little, we touched earlier on how would that be enforced? I mean, presumably you would have to deploy police resources at the border. They'd be doing, I don't know, they'd be doing like checkpoints, pulling people over, asking where you're going, what's your business. There's a lot of resources they'd have to put into enforcing something like this. Your thoughts? They would. And, and, you know, I I really feel for your caller. I, too, have had people who I know um, who have passed away due to COVID. It it is an absolute tragedy. And nobody wants to sound like we're insensitive to that. The question is, what are the measures we need to take in order to stop? And and the fact is that uh, community clusters and social gatherings are the reasons why that this this virus right now, um, those measures have needed to be taken uh, over the last several months that we've been that we've been living with and i think that we need to look at what's the best way forward and and a a travel ban in our opinion will not stop those those community clusters they they just won't so um so i think it's a matter of of measure and balance and i think black and white is not the solution here i think we have to be very rational in how we move forward and shutting down an entire industry is not, in, in our opinion, is not the way to do that. Let's go to uh, Bernie on the line in Mission. Hey, Bernie. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, with all due respect, I could not disagree with your guest who just spoke more vehemently. I would back support the first caller. And until you actually diligently enforce the lockdown and the, and the ban on travel, you're not going to know what impact it will have, plain and simple. Secondly, I understand people are hurting. That's what a pandemic does. It creates all sorts of financial hardships all over, not just in the travel industry. And, um, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is that right now we have other priorities, vaccines and getting things under control. And at some point we're going to have to make a, a plan and work towards recovery. But this very moment, I just don't believe we're quite there yet. 
Okay, Bernie, thank thanks for the much. thank you, Bernie, for the call. Let me go to Royce Twin, the CEO of Tourism Vancouver. Royce, what do you say to him? Yeah, I would I would say the same thing as Nancy just said. We're you know, we're not tone deaf to people moving around and it's is the question is it about movement or is it about behavior, which is what the evidence is bearing out that even if you were to shut things down completely, irrespective of the of the uh, economic damage that would happen, how can you absolutely enforce people's behavior where it is coming from social gatherings, whether it's a ski resort or whether it's in homes and that activity is happening, how do you police that? Um, right. shutting, yeah. down, shutting down transportation, never mind people traveling, but shutting down transportation, uh, you know, I think an earlier caller talked about shutting down the airport. Well, I think people forget that aircraft is not just about carrying passengers. The, they are uh, carriers for, for goods and supplies. They carry cargo that is essential for, for the movement of this country. So you're going to have these, you, you, you can't sacrifice your transportation infrastructure for the sake of shutting everything absolutely down. Okay, so that back would to be the, my concern. Back to the phone lines. Ian on the line in Nanaimo. Hi, Ian. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm good. Go ahead. Good. Okay, let's look at this from the 50,000-foot level as opposed to the 2,000-foot level where draconian thoughts are being played here like that to see what we're going to do. I think, in my opinion, if you were to do a cost-benefit analysis projected on the cost of a complete and total shutdown between the provinces, as an interprovincial travel ban would indicate, would say that the amount of legal costs that possibly could be arising from such a thing there, the challenge to the Section 6 of the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, would be completely way out of there. But the contingency plan would be, and the compromise would be, is to put checkpoints at the borderlines, at the uh, provincial boundaries. And the reason I say that is because me being a, an essential services worker, long-haul trucker, going down to the California and the various different places in the States, picking up food, every place that I slash we in the industry go to, we run through uh, introductory checks, uh, checkpoints there. We have to hmm. be screened before we even get into the premises. Between that, we are by ourselves inside a contained environment. So if you put checkpoints at the provincial boundaries there, you could then not restrict okay. the movement of travel, and you could check and see who may and may not have COVID, and then you can make a determination as to whether they're going to enter the province or not. So do a cost-benefit analysis on this first projected, and then come up with a conclusion instead of all okay. this rhetoric that's going around. All right, Ian. Thanks a lot for the call. We got more calls here, guys, but we're out of time. But uh, lots of interest from our listeners on this one. I want to thank our panelists, uh, Royce Twin, Tourism Vancouver. He's the CEO there. Nancy Small is the CEO of Tourism Richmond. Thanks for a good discussion, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. Thanks so much.